listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Steve. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are things at Harvard? I don't suppose there have been any controversies there over the last couple of months, have there? It's been incredibly calm. Uh, hardly anything to talk about. No, it's well, that's, been you know, that's quite, good. quite upsetting in, at, on multiple dimensions. Well, actually, we'll circle back to this because it is somewhat relevant to our main uh, topic today, which is the war in Gaza and, uh, you know, how Joe Biden is handling it and things like that. But first, let me introduce this. Um, I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. Uh, to which I encourage everyone to subscribe. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're Stephen Walt, professor of international relations at Harvard's Kennedy School, uh, author of, among other books, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And also um, a book that uh, made a big splash and generated a big controversy, which you co-authored uh, with John Mearsheimer called The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. Um, both of these are actually relevant uh, to what uh, to what we're we're talking about today. Um, so, uh, you are associated with a realist school of international relations. There are actually a lot of variants of that, but it, it seems like one thing all the variants have in common is that they focus a lot on the interest of nations, the national security interest of nations. And so, I wanted to start out by asking you. Uh, two things, um, you know, are America's interests being served by the war in Gaza and its continuation in this form? And are Israel's interests being served? Um, let's, uh, why don't we start with America? Yeah, uh, I think pretty clearly not, uh, that the war in Gaza is actually very harmful to American interests for a whole variety of, of different reasons. I mean, first of all, it's an enormous distraction. I mean, just look at the amount of time and bandwidth it has taken up of senior foreign policy officials. Lincoln has been to the Middle East now more times than I can keep track of. Uh, Biden has gone there as well. They're clearly spending you know, many hours uh, focusing on this, trying to figure out what to do uh, about it. And that means there's less time and attention to be voted to other issues, whether it's you know, China or Sudan or Africa or the migration crisis or how to win the next election, any of those things. So in that sense, it's, it's bad. Uh, second, I think this has done enormous harm to what you might call America's soft power. Uh, the United States has spent, you know, the <clears throat> decades trying to establish people that we really cared about human rights. We really cared about morality. And yes, we might have to compromise those things on certain occasions. Uh, but now the United States appears to be actively complicit which many what many people regard as a genocide uh, going on. Um, and at the same time that we're trying to convince people that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is really horrible, we appear to be actively helping Israel do something horrible uh, as well. Those two situations aren't identical, but there's enough inconsistency there that I think it really hurts the United States in lots uh, in lots of other places. Um, so for both of those reasons, this is not good. And then there's finally the possibility that this is going to get bigger, right? That this won't be confined to Gaza. We already have some clashes going on between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon. The Houthis in Yemen have been attacking shipping. Uh, there's some indications of uh, Iran doing various things that might get them involved. So you could imagine this turning into a much bigger war in the United States. 
And I'll just say, if I were a Chinese strategist, right, and Americans, of course, very worried about China and its rising influence, I would regard this as the best holiday present I'd ever received. Because all the Chinese have to do is step back and say, what, which major power has been managing things in the Middle East for the last 30 years? Gee, I think it's the United States of America. How's that working out? Not so great. Maybe it's time to share power more in the international system, reduce American influence. The argument kind of makes itself. So all things considered, this is really not good news from an American national interest point of view. Well, and actually, China might say, um, you know, before all this started, we had a recent accomplishment in the Middle East, that is China. It had kind of helped to orchestrate this uh, rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which in principle could have healed the biggest rift in the Middle East, or at least been the first step toward calming the waters there. Um, and, you know, now, you know, the U.S. has actually been working in an almost antagonistic direction to that for a long time in trying to draw Saudi Arabia back into, you know, its original, well, you get the point. I mean, China can can make the case that it's been a healthier influence uh, in the Middle East than the U.S. has been. Yeah, and and there's an, a lesson there. One of the reasons that China has able been able to do things like that is that they talk to everybody. Uh, they have economic and diplomatic relations with everybody in the region. They don't appear to have a big agenda other than trying to obtain energy from the region, which makes perfect sense given uh, given their interests. So in a sense, they can talk to everybody as a more or less honest broker. The United States is in a very different position for various historic and other reasons. We have special relationships with some countries in the Middle East, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, but no relationship to speak of with countries like Iran. We're not a particularly good honest broker or mediator in situations like that. So the Chinese are actually in a much more favorable diplomatic position uh, because, again, they do business with all sides. Yeah. Um, and to be clear about the on the genocide issue to a realist, I mean, when you've got your realist hat on, you're just looking at things through that lens, leaving aside your own moral concerns. But to a realist, the question isn't so much whether this is genocide as the fact that it's being perceived that way by nations that care about that and have influence in the world. So far as America's interests are concerns, concerned, that's the point, right? And and a question I have is like, how exactly, can you elaborate a little on how soft power works? Because we've seen these votes in the UN where it's like the US and Israel and two or three nations, tiny nations we can coerce into voting with us, right? Like on the issue of uh, whether uh, Palestinians have a, have a right to self-determination. Only like five nations in the whole world voted against that. Um, one of which I had literally never heard of. Uh, and and uh, the question is, when when world opinion is so arrayed against what the U.S. is doing, how, how does that hurt our interests? Um, it just makes everything harder to accomplish. It's not like other states won't make their own, uh, you know, sort of realist calculations and do what's in their interest and sometimes go along with the United States, because after all, going along with the United States can bring some benefits and opposing us usually has costs. So it's not like suddenly the entire world is going to gang up on the United States and stop uh, stop dealing with us. But it does make it harder. It makes it uh, harder to have people go along with you because they actually genuinely think you're doing the right thing. 
They think that your enormous position of influence in the world is fundamentally legitimate, that it's mostly operating for the broader benefit of uh, humanity. Uh, American politicians and diplomats, you know, go to great lengths to try and represent the United States as being not just a selfish great power, but as a country that's trying to do good for the world. Right. And the more we are engaged or supportive or complicit in really horrific acts, whatever label you want to put on them, the more that undercuts it. And of course, this makes it hard for governments, particularly democratic governments whose populations are upset by what the United States is doing, to then openly embrace and support the United States. So again, it's not like it suddenly, you know, casts the United States into the outer darkness or anything like that. But I think it greatly complicates American diplomacy. Let me give you just one example of this. I mean, um, you know, we have tried to rally the entire world to support Ukraine and to isolate Russia. Um, and that's worked very well in Europe, which, of course, is on board with us uh, for the most part, with, the, of course, the exception of Hungary uh, as well. But in the global, so-called global south, you don't get the same response. You don't get that response from India. You don't have to get that response from Saudi Arabia, from Brazil, from South Africa. Why does this matter? It matters because these countries continue to do business with Russia, continue to buy energy and other raw materials from Russia, help support the Russian war economy. So here's a case where we've got a major foreign policy issue trying to help Ukraine, and we can't get much of a hearing in the global south. And as a number of people have commented since the Gaza war broke out, all the work we did trying to bring those countries along is now basically been lost. Mm -hmm. Because as, as one foreign diplomat who was quoted in the Financial Times a couple of months ago said, you know, they'll never listen to us now. All this talk about rules, all this talk about order, that's just gone. I think that's basically right. Right. There is that issue that, that it isn't just the moral question. Uh, you know, genocide is a war crime. And and leaving aside how you how you define genocide and whether this is it, there are things that both Israel and the U.S. have done that are clearly violations of international law, and yet we do we do talk international law in, in trying to persuade people to uh, to go along. Yeah, let me add one one final thing that people ought to bear in mind, and that is that you know there's been the, the war in Gaza. This is not going to end the conflict. This is not going to bring this to an end. Hamas is not going to be completely eliminated. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're once again creating an enormous population with nothing to lose and a great deal of anger, right? And not just in Gaza itself, uh, but around uh, the Middle East. So this will have, I think, blowback effects elsewhere. There are going to be others. You're already seeing it in a few places. But you know, when six or eight months from now, a year and a half from now, there's a terrorist act directed against some American interest, uh, this did not come out of nowhere. And that's, again, another thing that affects American interests negatively. You can't always see the direct connection here. But the more you have the United States backing, uh, you know, really enormous acts of destructiveness and violence and injustice, the more you're likely to see that kind of activity sometime down the road. And that's not good for us, not good for anybody else either. Yeah, no, the chances of a, a big terrorist incident in the U.S. must have risen by at least some amount. And of course, the the divisions, the, the kind of uh, lower level kind of conflict we're seeing in the U.S. is evident for everybody seeing. We'll get back to that when we talk about uh, the situation at Harvard. Um, so as for Israel's interests, I mean, obviously, well, 
it's a good question whether Israel thinks it's pursuing its interests or uh, Bibi Netanyahu thinks he's pursuing his interests or he is pursuing his interests and thinks he's pursuing Israel's or what. And of course, this is always a question uh, with countries. But just looking at Israel's interests, do you think the continuation of the war is serving those? No, I don't. Uh, I have some sympathy for Israel's position. I mean, certainly uh, enormous sympathy for the attacks that they suffered uh, on October 7th, but also the fact that they're in essentially an impossible situation, or at least an extremely difficult situation uh, where what they're good at, which is, you know, acts of violence against a largely defenseless population, um, don't solve the problem. Uh, the fundamental problem being that you have roughly seven and a half million Palestinian Arabs and roughly seven and a half million Israeli Jews who have rival claims to the same territory. And we've this conflict has been going on now for, you know, a century or so. And reconciling those two claims is extremely difficult to do. As long as the Israeli government is committed to a sort of vision of greater Israel in which they get uh, effective political control over all of uh, Israel proper, all of the West Bank, and de facto control over Gaza, this conflict is going to keep going. Um, so what Israel is now doing is not going to solve the problem, is not going to resolve the issue of what to do with the seven and a half million Palestinian Arabs that are under Israeli control. This will simply uh, resurface in other forms uh, at various points down the road. I understand, I think, the need for Israel to respond after October 7th, but what they're doing here uh, is not going to solve that problem, which is fundamentally political. And in the meantime, it seems to me it's doing enormous harm to Israel's uh, international image, which was starting to improve. Um, it certainly, I think, has undermined Israel's standing here in the United States, particularly among young people, but also in other uh, circles uh, as well. And once I think the full extent of what has happened in Gaza becomes clearer to people, we see this in the weeks and months ahead, uh, the negative impact is going to be even greater, particularly when you couple it with some of the things Israeli political leaders have said. Um, and last but not least, the political divisions and turmoil that are going to continue in Israel over sort of the future of Israeli democracy. Mm. Unfortunately, I don't think what Israel is now doing in Gaza is ultimately in its long-term interest either. I mean, do you think it actually exacerbates the long-term problem of ultimately finding some kind of solution to the Palestinian problem? Yeah, I think no, no question, because it's going to make it even harder. Uh, and I put some blame on Hamas for this as well. It's going to make it even harder to devise a political solution that each side is willing to live with, uh, an arrangement, you know, people want to talk about going back to some kind of two-state solution. This makes it even harder to uh, develop any kind of workable two-state solution because neither side is going to trust the other. Uh, they didn't trust each other very much before this happened. They're going to trust each other even less uh, going mm -hmm. forward. Uh, have you seen the documentary Killing Gaza by any chance? It's an old documentary. It's from 2003. No, no, I haven't. It's it's actually interesting because it, it, it kind of supports both kind of rival narratives about this. One is the narrative that I think to some extent drives Israeli policy, which is that the problem is that there's this Hamas thing that has an infra whole infrastructure 
for inculcating in young minds, you know, hatred for Israel and willingness to die for the cause and become martyrs. Uh, and then there's the other narrative, which is, look, ultimately the problem is just the hatred. If, if there's enough people that hate Israel, enough people whose relatives and friends have been killed by Israel, for example, and Israel is now massively increasing the, the number of those, then even if you in some sense get rid of Hamas, ultimately you are going to you know face violent resistance uh, because it's ultimately driven by hatred. It's really a good example of, of how, yes, there is this infrastructure for channeling the hatred systematically, and Hamas hasn't. There's a creepy scene where they're kind of trying to turn this 14-year-old kid in, into an aspiring martyr. Uh, these militants are. Uh, but at the same time, you just you just see how, you know, of course, this was back during the Israeli occupation and we uh, of Gaza. We may see that again. But you also see how the hatred itself is being cultivated in such a powerful way by by uh, the fact of kind of the fact of occupation case. But I mean, do you do you agree that those are kind of two of the, the rival narratives and Israel does basically buy into one of them? Um, no, no question, and and there's undoubtedly some of that indoctrination going on as well. Uh, you know, in a sense, that's a little bit uh, like what we see in all countries, where we in, induce a certain amount of um, you know patriotism, and when there's a conflict going on, we're very quick. No country, I think, is immune to this. Very quick to demonize whoever the enemy is. Uh, we certainly did that in World War II with understandable reasons. Um, so the idea of indoctrinating people to hate the person who is uh, your opponent is hardly uh, hardly unique to this particular conflict. Let me say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, um, there is a right to resist uh, occupation. This is in the UN Charter right? that, that occupied peoples have the right to resist, including violent resistance. That subjects them to certain rules as well. They're not supposed to attack innocent civilians. So what Hamas did on October 7th is in fact a war crime. But the fact that an occupied population is resisting that occupation is not uh, surprising uh, or illegitimate. The second thing to remember is that uh, the popularity of Hamas has fluctuated a lot within the Palestinian community over time. And not surprisingly, every time the peace process appeared to be close to success, was making progress, might actually produce a genuine viable Palestinian state, support for Hamas went down. Because of course, Hamas was rejecting that particular solution. But when the Palestinian people saw that as a real option, Hamas became less popular. When that option appeared to be gone, appeared to be foreclosed, wasn't going to happen, surprise, surprise, support for Hamas goes up because it's now seen as the only alternative. If you can't do it through diplomacy, you're going to have to do it uh, some other way. And the final thing to remember is, of course, the Israeli government, and in particular, Bibi Netanyahu, has at various points actively supported Hamas or allowed support to go to Hamas and oh, and. We now know this, right? We have the receipts explaining that this was a good idea because it kept the Palestinians divided and it weakened the Palestinian Authority. Remember, Bibi Netanyahu's whole political career is based on preventing a two-state solution. The Palestinian Authority wants a two-state solution. So for Bibi, keeping the Palestinian Authority weak, divided, and in in certain circumstances, actually strengthening Hamas was a smart, or he thought, a smart tactical move. 
Now, the wisdom of that particular approach, I think, was demolished on October 7th when we saw what happened. And it's one of the reasons he's now in political trouble in Israel as well. Yeah, okay. So you think the war is emphatically not in American interests, emphatically not in Israeli interests. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the reasons it's not in American interests is, as you said, there's the seemingly growing chance of it going regional and drawing America in. Um, now, it is sometimes said that some pe some people in Israel, uh, possibly including Bibi Netanyahu, actually want to draw the U.S. into a war with Iran. I think they're definitely uh, cooler heads in the Israeli establishment. You actually, you hear from them all the time. Um, but do you do you think that's much of a factor here? Do you do you think uh, Netanyahu at least, and maybe some other prominent people? And we should say that I, there's a four is it a four person or a five person kind of war council that is is governing the conduct of the war in theory. Um, but but do you do you think Bibi or, or any other influential people actually want that to happen? Um. I don't have any evidence to suggest that's the case. I mean, certainly uh, Netanyahu has gone to enormous lengths again for years to try and make sure that the United States did not mend fences with Iran in any substantial way. You know, he was an ardent and vocal opponent of the uh, JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, spoke openly against it over and over and over again uh, here, especially in, in the United States as well. Uh, has always tried to convince Americans that Iran was our enemy uh, and never should be dealt with at all. Um, and I think there have been some circumstances where he might have been perfectly happy if the United States had, for example, decided to go after Iran's nuclear infrastructure, which Israel really didn't have the capability to fully destroy. Uh, but we could probably do a much better job of that. Um, I don't think he necessarily wanted an all-out war with the, in which the United States invaded Iran and got bogged down there because that might backlash in a variety of, of different ways. And he may have learned his lesson uh, from his earlier support for the Iraq War, where he claimed you know, back in 2002 that it would cause wonderful things to happen throughout the Middle East. Uh, not quite. Um, but I don't believe they're necessarily, you know, trying to drag us uh, into a war, uh, particularly right now. Okay. So uh, Biden would seem to have, in principle, enough uh, leverage to significantly alter Israel's course. Uh, you said it would be in America's interest to do that, and and actually Israel's, but leave that aside. It would be in America's interest. Uh, Biden says he wants to change their course. Um, to give you an idea of the leverage, uh, let me just read a quote from an Israeli major general, Yitzhak Brick, quote, all of our missiles, the ammunition, the precision guided bombs, all the airplanes and bombs, it's all from the U.S. The minute they turn off the tap, you can't keep fighting. Everyone understands that we can't fight this war without the United States, period. Now, so that's one form uh, of leverage. Uh, if we credibly threatened uh, to shut off the flow or suspend it or something, that would be very powerful lever. There's other forms of leverage. If Biden could credibly threaten to vote in a different way and at the UN than he's been voting, even credibly threaten to say certain things publicly, that would be real uh, leverage. Now, it's possible that leverage has been successfully exerted. The U.S. claims that they've been quietly working, and that's the reason we've seen I guess some forms of moderation uh, in Israeli behavior that aren't uh, 
glaringly apparent maybe to the casual observer, but maybe they're, I don't know, uh, maybe maybe they're real things. So for starters, what's your, what's your sense about the extent, if any, to which leverage has been successfully applied? Um, well, very little leverage has been applied. If by leverage you mean using the various tools of influence you have that could really uh, alter uh, you know, Israel's behavior or alter another actor's behavior. Um, I don't think they've ever sort of sat down and said, all right, look, if you don't do what we are advising you to do, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to pressure you into doing that. I think there have been, uh, you know, long and earnest conversations, expressions of displeasure, uh, the usual statements uh, in public of sort of support, but qualified support, probably some uh, raised voices on some telephone calls, uh, you know, attempts to say, but this isn't in your interests, et cetera. You really need to change. But there's no evidence I've seen that we're actually exerting any genuine leverage. We're not saying, all right, you're not going to get any more artillery shells. You're not mm -hmm. going to get any more tank rounds. Uh, we are, in fact, going to support the next ceasefire resolution in the UN Security Council, as opposed to vetoing it and leaving us, you know, completely uh, isolated as well. This is hurting us. We're not mad at you. Uh, this is not designed to punish you. It's just not in our interest mm -hmm. uh, to keep uh, allowing you to do this. There's no evidence that they're uh, doing any of that. Um, and I think that's not surprising. It's not unusual. This is more or less the way the United States has often behaved. I think this is a little bit different. Um, and there have been moments uh, in the past where, you know, American presidents have really put enormous pressure uh, to get Israel to stop doing certain things as well. You can go back to 1956, where Eisenhower uh, essentially told Ben-Gurion to evacuate the uh, Sinai Peninsula, which he was thinking about maybe trying to hang on to. Um, you can look at some of the things Reagan ultimately did after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 to uh, pressure the Israelis to uh, uh, lift the siege of Beirut, um, uh, etc. Um, so there are a few cases where this has happened, um, but by and large, this is pretty standard. I think the problem here is the magnitude of what has happened here, the number of deaths, the nature of the uh, Israeli actions, the amount of civilian harm being caused in a very short uh, amount of time, the statements made by uh, some Israeli officials uh, indicating uh, what uh, many regard as genocidal intent as well. All of those things put this in a, a slightly, slightly different category. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, it's uh, surprising to many of us that uh, Biden and Blinken are not trying to do more to actually end this. I'll just add one other point. You know, we talked a minute ago about how the possibility that this could get bigger is out there. The easiest way to get this not to get bigger is to get a ceasefire in Gaza mm -hmm. now. Because, of course, that's why the Houthis are attacking shipping. They're they quite explicit about this. Uh, that's why there's a possibility of an escalation between Hezbollah and Israel. That's why there's a possibility that this extends to Iran. Once you get a ceasefire, most of those things then uh, go away. So if Biden really wants to keep this one from getting bigger, the most obvious thing he could do is get the fighting to stop and get humanitarian relief into the uh, civilians in Gaza. And once that happens, uh, then you have to start thinking about what comes after that, what uh, some kind of new political process looks like. But that's not mm -hmm. going to happen until the bombs stop dropping. 
Yeah, no, I'm struck by that occasionally when, like right now, Blinken is running all over the region, you know, trying to put out fires here and there and, and get various people to do various things that might reduce the chances of regional conflagration. And then you read a quote like this thing from this Israeli general and you think, well, look, in principle, you know, you can solve the problem. You know, you can, you can actually literally uh, uh, stop the war. Um, it's not quite as simple as flipping a switch, but obviously, uh, you know, you, you could you could wind the thing down if you felt unconstrained by all of the considerations and just wanted to pursue America's interests, which will bring us uh, to your book, The yeah. Israel Lobby. But go ahead. It looks like you want to you want to yeah. say something um, to that. No, and I think one has to recognize is that, you know, Israel's the sovereign state and the United States might say, all right, look, we're suspending military aid for the moment. We are going to vote differently in the UN Security Council. And it's possible the Israeli government will say, thank you very much. We're going to do what we think is necessary. It's not mm -hmm. like the United States has direct control. Because there's enough weapons and arms in the spigot, beyond the spigot, so that they could go for a while. And and yeah, that that's that's right. Um, now, I would, I would just add... At some point, they have to they, pretty early. I would think they have to start thinking about their long-term supply of weapons and 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 husband those, and that might immediately constrain the extent. But but this is all very theoretically. We're we're talking about a world where there are no political constraints, and I want to move to a discussion of what the political constraints are. But anyway, I mean, you certainly agree that if Biden just wanted to shock everyone and do everything he could do to influence Israel we would in all likelihood see a significant change in Israeli behavior, right? I, I think that certainly increases the chances of it. That's right. <laughs> I just want to acknowledge the, the fact that, again, sure. American presidents don't have a telephone. They can yeah. pick up issue orders and necessarily yeah. get automatic compliance, even if they issue, you know, even if they use the leverage at their disposal. We've seen that in lots of other yeah. situations. Well, I've always... I've always felt it was overstated the extent to which just the amount of U.S. financial aid to Israel per se is a critical consider consideration to Israel in the long run. I mean, you know, Israel is a is a very affluent country with a very sophisticated technical infrastructure that can make a lot of uh, sophisticated weapons and so on in the long and, run. And by the way, before we move on to the, I know you want to move to a new topic, but um, it should be we should bear in mind that the longer this war goes on, of course, the worse it is for Israel as well. Uh, their army depends on a reserve system. They've pulled a lot of people uh, out of civilian life. This is having real negative consequences for the Israeli economy. So getting back to the question of is this in Israel's interest, uh, you know, a long protracted campaign in Gaza is ultimately actually harmful to the Israeli economy, uh, hurting tourism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, all of these things, you know, suggest it would be in Israel's interest to try and get this over with yeah. sooner rather than later. We should note in passing that there's this quirk of the current situation, which is that everyone thinks that Bibi Netanyahu gets to remain prime minister as long as the war continues. And then he's not because of the politics in Israel. And of course, that throws a perverse uh, incentive in and increases the chances that he at least would try to uh, resist American leverage. Now, that said, there is this war council. And some of the people on it are more focused than him on Israel's interests, presumably, as opposed to his. And in fact, some of them would love to see him <laughs> fall right now because that would that would put them in power, probably. But uh, I just wanted to note that, that that's a weird uh, thing that, well, anyway, it's a weird thing. <laughs> um, go ahead. You want to say something about nope. that? Nope. Uh, so let's move on to domestic constraints. So 
in principle, Biden has a lot of leverage he's not using. Um, uh, wh why is he not using it? What's your take uh, on on his calculus? I mean, he well, said to, to have uh, he has longstanding kind of affinity for Israel, I guess. Uh, certainly he's voted that way. But um, what's your take? Yeah, no, I think there's like two big things going on in terms of domestic politics. And in some respects, um, Biden is kind of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't uh, in terms of domestic politics. Let's start with the first part. I think that it's quite clear, and there's been lots of uh, you know reportage on this, that Biden has a very deep emotional commitment. It may have some political roots in sort of understanding where the power uh, forces were aligned in American politics, and he was was in the Senate for a long time and understood that. But I think it's more than that. I think it is genuine. I think it's emotional. I think it's badly out of date. Uh, it's a sort of, a, you know, image of uh, the plucky Jewish state uh, that was inculcated in, uh, in his youth and early in his political career. I think it's uh, also generated for people of his generation by quite genuine and admirable uh, sympathy uh, in sort of the post-Holocaust era, et cetera. But it's, a, a, it's personal. And there's even been some reports suggesting that within the administration, that he's been the one who's kind of been most supportive uh, in it, that members of his staff, people in the White House are really upset by this, but they haven't been able to budge him uh, from his particular position. So in a sense, some of this, I think, is you know attributable to Biden personally. Now, the, the politics of it are clear. On the one hand, um, if he were to do what you and I seem to think would be desirable, uh, he would immediately face a firestorm of criticism from what you know the groups that we wrote about, uh, like the uh, um, uh, like APAC and others. The you uh, and the you and John Mearsheimer wrote about in in our in book, Israel. Uh, the Israel uh, Lobby. Um, uh, journalists who are sympathetic to Israel, and there are plenty of them, would immediately write articles about how he was, you know, selling the Jewish state down the river at the moment of this uh, uh, great. Uh, uh, you know, crisis, that he was somehow uh, supporting Hamas, that he was uh, going soft on terrorism, this was going to undermine American credibility, etc. So you can uh, rehearse all the arguments uh, that would get made. Uh, this would probably affect at some level uh, contributions by uh, pro-Israel people to the Democratic Party in an election year. Uh, and that uh, you know, it's suddenly uh, Congress people who worry about this possibility of uh, people who think they might get targeted by APAC in an election are going to call up the White House and say, what do you think you're doing? He's mindful of all of that stuff. Of course, that's on one side. The problem he's also facing is that for younger Americans, um, they're not happy with the way the United States is handling this as well. And you're already seeing evidence that you know, voters who voted for Biden back in 2020 are probably not going to vote for Trump necessarily. They may just stay home and they may stay home in enough numbers in key battleground states that it really hurts his electoral chances. And something uh, that concerns me is that I think one of Biden's big advantages in 2020 was the perception that whatever you thought of his policies and all that, that he was a fundamentally decent guy, Scranton Joe, good, good person. People in the Senate, his Senate opponents would always talk about what a great guy he was, you know, show up at funerals. That's how he was a good guy as opposed to Trump, who quite clearly wasn't. 
mm-hmm. you know, just uh, selfish, narcissistic, etc. This was, I think, a real advantage. Well, what Gaza is doing for Biden in the minds of at least some Americans is making him look like he's kind of heartless, um, that he either doesn't know what's going on or he doesn't care about it. And that makes him look not identical to Trump, but much more like Trump than he looked in 2020. But I think Biden's in a real bind here. If he does what's in the American national interest, it's going to hurt him politically. If he doesn't do what's in the American national interest, it might hurt him politically. Um, I would like to see him step aside from the politics of this and say, I'm just going to do the right thing as I see it here. I worry that he doesn't see it the way I do. Yeah. Is it even clear to you which politically hurts him more doing that or doing what he's doing now? Um, I, I really can't say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I think that, you know, his calculation to the extent that he's even thinking in these terms is that at the end of the day, he'd face more trouble if he actually challenged Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things we show at great length in our book is that, you know, every time American presidents have tried to do this, even in a small way, they've faced a firestorm of criticism. They face pressure within their own party. And because the Republican Party is kind of all in on supporting Israel for a variety of different reasons, uh, you'll face a huge amount of uh, criticism there as well. No reason to think, by the way, that a President Trump would be uh, acting uh, any differently than Biden is acting here. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think a lot of kind of influential pro-Israel actors were very worried about Trump in 2016 um, in a way that presumably they're not so worried now after seeing how he performed for four years. I mean, the th- he has this in, you know, if you imagine these kind of Trumpist elites, which includes these kind of people in the alt-right, I don't mean elite in a flattering way. I just mean they're very relatively well-informed and vocal on social media and so on. There is a, a, a constituency of not just, uh, uh, you know, a flat-out anti-Israel, if not anti-Semitic people. There, there is that, and I think that was very concerning to the pro-Israel forces. But Trump in office has, has been... Well, probably too recklessly supportive of Israel uh, for for the for the in the view of some of the the more moderate pro-Israel people, but but you know uh, more ardently pro-Israel than some might have anticipated, right? And and by the way, just if we can have a brief footnote here, it's worth noting that you know Trump's major achievement, if you want to call it that, in the Middle East was the so-called Abraham Accords, right? It, uh, which was an attempt to begin normalizing Israel's relations with a number of Arab states, none of them, by the way, critical to the conflict in any particular way uh, as well. And that got started under Trump. That was his big Middle East initiative, which completely sidelined the Palestinian issue. What did the uh, uh, Biden administration do? Their principal Middle East initiative uh, it turns out to be trying to expand on the Abraham Accords by bringing in Saudi Arabia. Now, they, they did it for a variety of different reasons. I think, as you alluded to earlier, it was partly trying to keep Saudi Arabia on our side uh, in the uh, you know rivalry with China, etc. But that initiative, because it appeared to sideline the Palestinian issue, begun by Trump, continued by Biden, is probably one of the reasons that Hamas decided 
to launch its attacks on right. October 7th to remind everybody that this issue couldn't be sidelined, was going to come up sooner or later. Uh, we can right. condemn the specific things they did to bring it to everyone's attention. But the fact of the matter is that that it was in part a response to initiatives being undertaken first by Trump and then by Biden. Right. Because traditionally, the idea had been that normalization of, of Arab states with Israel, normalization of relations would be the carrot held out and not given to Israel until the Palestinian problem was solved. And, and so this major incentive was basically disappearing thanks to Trump and Biden from the point of view of the Palestinians. I mean, separate from that, I'm sure Hamas felt personally threatened. Part of the Saudi Arabia deal was going to be to channel resources to the Palestinian Authority, arrival of Hamas and so on. There were a lot of things going on, but, but, but I agree uh, that, that in retrospect, um, uh, this was maybe the biggest contributor to uh, October 7th. The, um, uh, let's sidestep for the sake of time something you alluded to, which is a kind of reflexive assumption on the part of American foreign policymakers that whatever China wants is bad. Like, you know, it, it might you might think naively that bringing stability and peace to the Middle East would be a good thing. But if China supports an initiative that could lead to that, which is rapprochement between Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, Iran, it must be bad. And of course, Israel didn't didn't uh, I guess didn't want it to happen. And that adds to that. But uh, anyway, quickly, do you it, want to say anything? It is, yeah, it is worth noting, by the way, that the um, American reaction to the Saudi Iranian rapprochement or entente or whatever you want to call it, um, a reduction of tensions uh, that was partly mediated by Chinese. The American response to that was actually pretty muted. I mean, we sort of said, you know, okay, good thing. You know, we didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, sing a bunch of hallelujahs about it. I do think it uh, raised red flags or concerns uh, within the U.S. government, within the uh, administration, and that led them to sort of double down to try and pull off this very intricate bank shot of of sort of getting the Saudis to agree to normalize uh, in exchange. What the Saudis were going to get for it was a security guarantees from the United States, maybe access to some nuclear technology. That was all still being being worked out. Um, and we don't know if if that deal will ever come back again uh, mm -hmm. in light of, of subsequent events. Um, but it's certainly been delayed, uh, if not derailed, by what's now happening. So back to domestic political strength, constraints on Biden, why don't you define the Israel lobby as you and jo John Mearsheimer did in the book? Because I think some people just think of APAC, and that is the, a literal lobby, but you were you were speaking about something uh, more diffuse. Yeah, uh, we, we refer to it as a loose coalition of groups whose principal purpose is to maintain the special relationship between the United States and Israel. And by special relationship, I mean one where the United States gives Israel a lot of support, economic, military, and diplomatic, and does so pretty much unconditionally, uh, independent of what Israel does. And of course, that's exactly what we're seeing now, essentially, unconditional support, uh, regardless of how Israel behaves. Occasionally, you'll get a you know presidential spokesman who's saying saying that their actions are unhelpful or something like that, but not much more, not much more than that. 
Um, and this uh, is not a conspiracy. It's an interest group, the same way right. we have you know, the NRA and the farm lobby and big pharma and all of these other things. And there's a Ukraine lobby. There's a Taiwan lobby. There, there are lobbies happening. Cuban-Americans in Florida who have uh, shaped American policy towards Cuba for you know, 50, 60 years as well. So this is, uh, as we say in the book, this is as American as apple pie, pretty, pretty mm -hmm. normal. And of course, it operates in lots of different ways. It operates by supporting candidates through political contributions and PACs. It operates by sending people up on Capitol Hill to lobby people directly and provide talking points. It uh, they uh, APAC spun off a think tank, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, to put out uh, pro-Israel, uh, you know, analysis of one kind or another. Uh, people support other think tanks that have a pro-Israel uh, uh, orientation. There are some people, by no means all, but some people in the world of journalism who clearly are deeply sympathetic and write that way, which is, again, you know, the way America uh, works. And the end result of this, because these activities have been extraordinarily effective over time, has been, uh, in our view, to skew American policy in a very, you know, sort of unconditional direction uh, toward Israel uh, in ways that were deeply harmful to American foreign policy, but also un, uh, inadvertently or unintentionally uh, harmful to Israel itself. And one of the points we made in the book way back in 2007 was that if you didn't get a two-state solution, all of the other alternatives were much, much worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and because most of the groups, not all, but most of the groups in the lobby were opposed to a two-state solution or any kind of reasonable outcome there, they were helping create the conditions that we've ultimately seen result in what happened on October 7th, which is a tragedy for Israel, but also what's been happening ever since, which is a tragedy for the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And again, with, with kind of any kind of lobby, well, with many of these lobbies, you can find the same basic elements, even if collectively they may not be as powerful. I mean, in the case of Ukraine, you definitely had some journalists who just were not covering the thing objectively. Uh, they uh, and and you had uh, think tanks where there was support. It, it's a it's a much smaller lobby. You had ethnic voters uh, of Ukrainian descent who who mattered. Um, and in fact, the original decision to expand NATO, uh, I think, had something to do with Clinton's uh, calculations about uh, voters of Polish-American descent and other Eastern European descent and so on. So like all the elements, um, none of these elements are qualitatively new in a certain sense. The, the, uh, there have always been donors who have, who have concerns. Um, in, in the, uh, and, and we should say, as far as voters of you know, ethnic affiliation, uh, there are lots of American Jews who aren't on board with with what Israel's doing right now, and and the one of the problems Biden faces is that that's particularly true of younger Jews in America. Now, right. um, what what would you what are the think tanks you mentioned? Uh, YNEP, which I think maybe has changed its name to just the Washington Institute. I'm not sure, but uh, what what are some uh, think tanks that weren't set up by Israel, but you know, get donations from strongly pro-Israel people and are reliably supportive of more or less whatever the, the policy of the Israeli government is. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't sort of followed the evolution of some of these places, uh, you know, since we wrote the book, but I would think of, you know, the, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, JINSA, uh, the American Enterprise Institute uh, for a long time was very heavily uh, shaped. Brookings uh, for a while had the Sabin Center for Middle East Studies, which was very uh, heavily uh, pro-Israeli. 
Uh, the Hudson Institute uh, as well would be one I'd probably associate uh, with as well. Um, and again, it's not like there aren't any critical voices anywhere in Washington, D.C. or in academia or in other parts of the uh, the journalistic world, but uh, it's, I think, been over you know many years heavily skewed in one particular way, uh, particularly, if I may say, at the sort of level of of you know elite media, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, uh, New York Times. If you look at the sort of array of, say, columnists who write there, there is some uh, spectrum of opinion, but it's not a particularly diverse spectrum of opinion a as well. Um, and I think that ultimately tends to shape how Americans view a lot of this. Yeah, especially oh, they... very, very importantly, I should also mention that there's the wings of the sort of Christian evangelical movement, uh, Christians United for Israel uh, being the most sort of prominent mm -hmm. example uh, that for particular theological reasons have a view of uh, Israel as part of fulfillment of biblical prophecy and therefore are very supportive, not just of Israel, but of a greater Israel, which right. they believe is a step that will herald the second coming of Christ. Uh, some of these groups, I think, have a very dodgy view of uh, of Jews in general, and some have been accused right. of having you know sort of anti-Semitic undertones. But in terms of politics, of course, they're supportive of the special relationship. Yeah, in fact, I would guess that for Republicans, uh, more of the quote pro-Israel influence. I put it in quotes because uh, neither of us thinks that what Israel is doing now is actually good for Israel. But um, the more the, the, the political force uh, comes from the actual grassroots voters, like there's a lot of evangelical voters. There's, there's, I would guess there's more Republican voters who care deeply about this than there are Democratic voters. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't looked at sort of polling on that. It is important to to note that uh, you know even I think for evangelical voters, uh, U.S. policy towards Israel is probably not the number one issue that's driving their voting behavior, uh, et cetera. It might be a part of the whole menu of things, but my guess is, like most Americans, they don't care that much about foreign policy. So mm -hmm. it's one item among many, but it's not the thing that's you know, when they get into the ballot box and they're trying to decide who to vote for, they're not suddenly going, oh, well, I like this person more because uh, they said the right thing about Jerusalem or mm -hmm. something like that. I could be wrong about that, but um, but my sense is it's not, it's there, but it's not the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Now, in your list of think tanks, you didn't mention the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Oh. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, uh, oversight on my part. Yeah, no, FDD is obviously clear. No, I mean, because yeah. they're kind of uniquely influential because they do a lot of research that gets journalists to actually rely on them and quote them in right. in straight news pieces. And they're, they're ferocious in their, you know, in their views and yet kind of treated as this sober source of analysis at the same time. Yeah, I, I, which is something I've never quite understood. Uh, I um, I assume it's it's mostly that you know in in Washington for many journalists it's you know you're on a short deadline you know someone there will pick up the phone will give you a quote you can use and they work very hard like some other think tanks do to try and get their material out there but uh, mm -hmm. but to to view them as an objective source of analysis on Middle East topics uh, I think at this point is kind of laughable. Okay. Um, 
one other uh, kind of main dimension of your or dimension of your book that comes to mind that we haven't talked about, but is the idea of a speech code being enforced by some uh, kind of elements of the lobby. I don't mean uh, they're omnipotent, but they try to enforce it. Uh, what you can and can't uh, say about Israel, right? Right. Right. And, and I mean, I think our experience, unfortunately, kind of confirmed this, right, which is that if one is critical of Israeli policy and particularly if you're if you're critical in a sort of clear, uh, un, unsentimental way, you're going to be, uh, you know, immediately attacked as being anti-Semitic. And of course, there's been a campaign over a, a number of years now to broaden uh, the definition of anti-Semitism to include any particular criticisms uh, of the state of Israel uh, as well. Moreover, if you uh, point out that groups like APAC are in fact very effective at doing exactly what they claim their goal is, which is to influence American policy in a pro-Israel direction, um, you'll be accused of uh, being an anti-Semitic who's conjuring up all of these old tropes about secret Jewish cabals and the protocols of the elders of Zion and things like that. Um, even though, in fact, again, all you're doing is pointing out that these groups are quite good at doing what they say they're trying uh, to do and that it's all happening uh, out in the open. It sort of doesn't matter how often you say uh, that you're not uh, yeah. accusing anyone of, of a conspiracy or a cabal or anything like that. And the purpose for doing this is twofold. One is to intimidate people. Uh, because who wants to be attacked for being an anti-Semite? Uh, and uh, uh, second, it's to marginalize people. You know, say, well, I could call so and so and ask them what's going on, but I, me, you know, then I'm going to get in trouble. My editor's going to wonder why I'm talking to that controversial figure who mm -hmm. so many people are criticizing. So it both serves to intimidate some people, but smearing folks also tries is a way of trying to marginalize them. And then finally, there's just silencing, which is uh, or silencing or canceling, um, uh, where you know people who uh, take a pro-Palestinian view or who are critical of Israel are more likely to have uh, their appearances canceled or questioned. Uh, and there's been plenty of examples since the war in Gaza campaign. This is what happened to us uh, when we published our book. Several places mm -hmm. that invited us to speak then canceled it after uh, influential people leaned on them. Um, so all three, all three of these things, I think, help um, enforce a kind of uh, narrow discussion and therefore uh, sustain uh, just a false image of Israel in the world and a false analysis of its policies. And the irony is that some of us, I'm speaking only for myself, not necessarily you, but think that this has actually been bad for Israel in the long run. It, it's, uh, it's actually made a solution to the Palestinian problem less likely. Um, yeah. But uh, so I want to talk more about this. Uh, this leads to the whole Harvard controversy, leads to other things you talked about in your book, like uh, the Anti-Defamation League uh, and its role in, in uh, policing the speech code. Uh, but we have reached the end of the public portion of this podcast. Uh, we generally talk for close to an hour for a public audience, uh, typically have an overtime uh, session that's available to premium subscribers of the non-zero newsletter. Um, and if you want to become one of those, you, there's a link you can click in the in the app show notes. So you can just Google non-zero and Substack and get there as well. And then you can set up your app so that uh, your podcast app so that forevermore you'll always get access to the overtime 
sections. And Steve, you've been kind enough to agree to stick around for the overtime part. Uh, I want to get into all these things, including your own experience in publishing uh, the Israel lobby and the aftermath of that, which I'm sure was in some ways uh, uncomfortable. Um, uh, first, is there anything you want to add uh, by way of emphasis or qualification or anything uh, for the public audience uh, to what you've said? No, I think it's been a good conversation. Okay. All right. So we are heading into overtime.